You're the author of a new book, Value, 30 Conversations on What Money Can't Buy, which is described as an elegiac account of what has recently been lost in the digital apocalypse, but also a steadfastly enthusiastic and optimistic look at what we can regain in a post-viral, more analog and more thoughtful world. You dedicated it to Robinson Crusoe. Tell us why that is. But the dedication to Robinson Crusoe, partly, of course, is my, in my cheek where my tongue spends a lot of its time, uh, about a person coping with isolation and coping magnificently with isolation. Apart from anything else, I'd earnestly recommend people return to Robinson Crusoe. It's a terrifically good story. One of the things I wanted to ask you was what would you have said has changed as far as your values are concerned during the course of the great isolation? Like everybody else, I've missed the company of friends and, um, you know, friends and family, the opportunity to do something simple like just going out for a, a cup of coffee to read the newspaper now seems, for the past year, has seemed a, you know, as exotic an adventure as a, as a sort of ride to Xanadu or Shangri-La on a Chinese treasure ship. So simple things like that. You've also reminded us about the value of solitude and privacy. Privacy, I think, is one of the great inventions and privileges of the modern world. I mean, model with a capital M, in the way historians think of modernism, the 18th century enlightenment onwards. Privacy didn't really exist before the 18th century. Most activities were, were communal, you know, shared. And equally, the idea of an individual personality didn't really exist much before the, uh, you know, before, before the enlightenment. It's a romantic idea. It's something which is empowering for the individual. This modern privilege, which we know we've enjoyed recently, is the first victim, of course, of the surveillance industries of California. Ruskin, you, you, you have an imagined conversation with him. Yeah. Why, do we, why do we work? And the answer is the highest reward for a person is not what they get for their work, but what they become by it. And I th think that that does ring true, and one would hope even more so in the years to come. I revere Ruskin. began to see uh, no distinction between art and life, and he, he revered the dignity of work. At the foundation of the Labour Party in 1900 or whatever it was, more people cited John Ruskin as their inspiration than cited Karl Marx. Ruskin's belief in that you can read objects, that objects have meaning, objects are invested with the sentiments and the beliefs and the values of the people who made them, I think that's an immensely important and, and, and encouraging idea. You remind us of Clive James, who described television as the idiot's lantern. Yeah, sure. Even I've been watching television you know, in, the, in, the, in the past 12 months, and I wouldn't describe myself as a television addict. Um, but what do, you do when, what, what do you do when you've run out of new shows to download? The other thing that is a slightly darker side of it, and I think you're right, you talk about Thomas Mann's death in Venice and the voluptuousness of doom. You know, we're not used to pandemics and infectious diseases and death. I mean, I wonder what you th how you think our attitude towards mortality has altered in the last 12 months. The point I was just trying to make there is we've all been shocked by the pandemic because we thought our world was, you know, was nearing perfection, didn't we? But actually, plagues of one sort or another have been a near constant in human affairs. It's the plague-free era, which is the freak in history. Exposure to these shocking physical and metaphysical realities, I think is, um, dare I say it, good for the soul. Mm. And you say towards the end, carpe diem, and you, you, you say that because you, you reckon that remorse is less damaging 
than regret. It's, much, I, it's, it's far better to, I think, feel sort of you know, <laughs> both guilty about things you have done than feel, than feel sorrowful about things you haven't done. And that's surely a lesson we've, we've all learned the past year. But I love it. I mentioned somewhere in the book as well, uh, a fabulous anecdote about Joan Didion, you know, who's one of my favourite writers, and I think one of the great living masters of English prose. I mean, Jedin's habit was you know, to work every morning at her writing desk and then to, at midday or so, to set up a little table on an immaculate white linen tablecloth, get out a baccarat crystal glass, have a glass of something to drink. And a, and a visitor said to her on one occasion, do you do this every day? And Didion just quietly said, yes, because every day is all we've got. We've got to bring you back to something more mundane, and that is Britain post-Brexit. We spoke to Satnam, whom you know, and he sees Brexit as a sort of a continuum, as a part of a sort of declinism from the colonial era and an example of British exceptionalism. If, if you were doing a, a branding exercise, God forbid, on UK PLC, what would you seek to sort of emphasise and to draw strength and, you know, economic success from we don't want to rebrand britain because only, only sort of banana republics worry about branding in that sense but i think exceptionalism is quite a good thing to believe in elitism whether personal elitism or national elitism is to believe that life is on existence and business whatever is on a gradient yeah brexit is just brexit is just politi- politics and bureaucracy and politics and bureaucracy are not the most important things in the world Now, your final paragraph says, you just need to keep asking questions, cultivate the senses, and enjoy the mysterious glory of the everyday, because that is all we've got, and there's huge value to be had in realising and enjoying that. But we have to dream a bit bigger than that, don't we? I do believe the future of the civilised world is for people to operate in smaller and smaller self-dependent groups. You know, and the better forms of the technology we have will allow that to happen. I think overarching national agendas uh, are really things, you know, really things of the past. Small, group, small groups are the future. But, you know, I'm, you know, I'm actually up there with Voltaire. I mean, the important thing is to cultivate your own garden. If we all cultivated our own garden to the best of our abilities, the, all of us, the totality of us, would be more prosperous mm. and probably happier. To go back to big tech then, finally, they are extraordinarily dominant at the moment. What are the values that you feel that they're not sort of understanding? They're under the impression that they can kind of fix the whole lot. But I don't think you're so convinced, are you? Oh, I'm not at all convinced. I think that this version of technology, the Amazon, Google, uh, Microsoft, Facebook version of it, is one of the great swindles of uh, intellectual and moral swindles in all of history. I think the promise of connectivity has been hugely um, exaggerated and overemphasized. I, mean, I could send you a video of a skateboarding hamster if I, in a couple of minutes if I wanted to, but I'm not sure that's a real benefit to civilization. When I say it's a swindle, you just look at Apple, which likes to present itself as a, as a, a bunch of Zen-inspired, well-meaning, alfalfa-munching hippies who just want people to be, you know, enjoy themselves and be happy. It's actually a huge, cynical, manipulative organization. Uh, much more cynical than General Motors was in the 1950s. We see it as rather relevant that Jeff Bezos, so far from an influence to improve conditions on this planet, um, is really spending what surplus income he has, which is rather quite a lot, on trying to escape it and going to outer space. And that seemed to be the greatest condemnation of all.
I'm with Voltaire cultivating our own garden, whereas Bezos wants to go to Mars to cultivate gardens there, leaving behind the appalling inheritance of you know, wreckage of waste and the disappointment which Amazon represents. My predicament is I actually love the world. You know, and I think the, and the idea that some of the most powerful and richest people on earth are spending their time trying to escape it strikes me as utterly deplorable. Bezos would be much better sitting down in his mansion with a volume of Ruskin. I, I believe that to be the case, but he could always get it on Amazon. <laughs>